Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, October the 8th. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time at our partners, MetsamorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. There's one that I'm not on that you'd like to conveniently be on. Let me know. I'll try to get on it. Want to make this as easy a transaction as possible for you. Hope everybody's doing well. You probably weren't sure when I'd be popping back on because after last week's uh, program with Dave Lennon about the uh, pretty much putting a cap on the Mets 2017 season, talking about Terry Collins, uh, really getting a feel for the postmortem, I think, on Collins. And, and we're done with that. I mean, Dan Wortman is gone. Uh, Terry Collins is gone. 
the only member of the staff, and if, if I could not have asked for a better scenario, is to keep Kevin Long and uh, and get and purge the rest. I mean, Pat Rosler, the the assistant hitting coach, is sticking around, and uh, that's fine. I mean, I always feel the pitching coach is more of a integral part, but maybe that's changing. Maybe I'm wrong, and that's something maybe that we need to uh, examine more as the off season goes on and learn a little bit more about. But anyway. You could not have asked for a better scenario as the Mets try to move forward. Now, enough with looking back of the, you know, when it comes to Terry Collins and what have you. I know Andy Martino at uh, SNY over at Mets Blog wrote a piece about his rationale, and he shared a couple of, I guess, breakfast meetings he had with Collins over the last six or seven years to give an, an idea of why he enjoyed covering Collins and why he enjoyed Collins so much. And it really just tied into what you heard last week from Dave Lennon where they liked him. And, you know, that's a great segue into the next manager because I really believe, and if if you've been watching any of these postseason games, the bullpen part of the X's and O's is what a manager has to get their head wrapped around. And if you have a bad bullpen, there's not a lot you can do. You're still going to have issues. But I really believe put together – a bullpen with the components, the situational guys, your setup guy, your reliever. You may not have the best bullpen. I really believe that you can maximize those guys if you put them in the right position to be successful. Now, it's pretty absurd that you, you're getting two or three inning starts from, from the starters here in the postseason. But if you look back and you remember in 2006 when the Mets were in the playoffs and they had starting pitching issues, this is pretty much what you see what the Yankees are trying to do and, and Cleveland, who has a very good starting staff, but had issues with Kluber in Game 2. What they tried to do is you try to get as much as you can from your starters. The minute you feel that the expiration has come on your starter, you go to the bullpen. And then you do matchups, matchups, try to get to your setup, your, your seventh inning guy, your eighth inning guy, your closer. And now that even has become where those guys can go multiple innings, which is just essential, I think, going forward. The days where a guy could just do one inning, sit down, I don't know if that could happen. Certainly not in the postseason. But the point is the next Mets manager, who I believe will have a better bullpen. And I don't think the Mets have had bullpens that are great. That's been a huge issue with the way Alderson has built bullpens. But at times, I think because of the way they've been used and abused, and that was something talked about in that anonymous column, uh, the anonymous quotes column, that Mark Kerrig had, had wrote a couple of weeks ago, or actually about a week ago in uh, Newsday, that Collins would use and abuse players, and I think that's part of it. Now it's full, full throttle. You're in the playoffs now. You've got to go out. You've got to get it done. So anyway, that has become anybody that they interview. They have to get a feel. What is your bullpen philosophy? How are you going to manage this bullpen? If they can't do it, nothing else matters. Yes, the, the, the handling the players, holding them accountable, changing what I think is a, a bit of a stale culture. Uh, and it seems like with the news of the purge at Las Vegas uh, and, and the new hires down in AAA, that there was issues in AAA. I mean, there's a, I mean it seems like the Mets had a lot of issues culture-wise uh, throughout the organization. And I'm not sure that that certainly falls under Alderson. And that's the hit on Alderson is why do you have these issues? Are, we, are they hiring the right people? But that's another conversation. The point here is, you need to have a manager that, that culturally can make sure he holds these players accountable and manages that clubhouse. You don't want to have dysfunction. It can derail a season. 
and then managing the media. And unfortunately, and you saw it in the Andy Martino column over at Mets Blog, and if you, if you haven't read it yet, go to Twitter at Mike Silva Media. I tweeted it out yesterday. They want to like the guy they're covering. They want the guy to be quotable. And a lot of the managers that are coming in, uh, especially the fact if they were a modern ball player, someone who was in the 90s or late 90s into the turn of the century, they, it became an era where they were much more careful about what they say. And now with social media and all the things that go on uh, with TMZ and, and everything, everybody's so concerned because everything could be blown out of proportion. Look at a role this Chapman uh, liking something on Instagram about a negative comment about Joe Girardi. That, that's not getting a lot of play, but that's certainly something that, uh, you know, that's coming up. So those are the things. Now, what are we doing here today? I have uh, with us in just a little bit Jim Margallis, SouthsideSox.com. Why am I bringing Jim on? Well, Robin Ventura and Joe McEwing, two former Mets who hold a very special place in the, in the heart of Mets fans because of their contributions to a pennant-winning team. Super Joe was a, a backup that made the most of his talent and was known to be a Randy Johnson slayer. Ventura was a gold-glove third baseman, had a, an MVP caliber year in 1999, might have had a better year than Mike Piazza, might have been a more important component to the offense than, than Piazza that season. And uh, in 2000, although he started to have some injuries and decline a little bit, uh, was a big part of the 2000 pennant-winning team, also went across town for the Yankees and, and was a very good component player for them. Uh, in uh, 2002, uh, when he went over there after the Mets uh, traded him that offseason. So a, a New York guy, a guy that everybody knows and loves, some concerns. And, and, and I think Mark Allis is going to uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, Jim, a blog, a, you know, a blog called SouthsideSox.com over at SB Nation. Although he's not covering Ventura night in and night out in the clubhouse, I wanted to get the feel of someone who is trying to write professionally, but also has the passion or channels the fans. So what was the feel? What was Ventura as a White Sox manager? He was there four years. There was some clubhouse disharmony and things of that nature. So uh, how was he X's and O's wise? How did he manage a bullpen? What can Mets fans expect? Because if he's an early favorite, he could be an early favorite because Fred Wilpon likes him and Fred Wilpon remembers him or Jeff Wilpon remembers him as third baseman for the, the Mets in 1999 to uh, 2000, 2001. But that's not what is going to make him a successful manager. So that's really, really, really important. So we'll get a feel from Mark Allison in just a couple of minutes as uh, he's going to come join me here. It's actually Sunday morning I'm recording this. So if you're listening to this and you're listening to this, uh, uh, you know, this is an early morning, I guess, edition of the podcast. The other thing you're hearing is the endorsements. Uh, Bobby Valentine making a huge endorsement for McEwing and Ventura. Uh, you got to take that seriously. I mean, Bobby V was probably right there with Davey Johnson, maybe even better than Davey Johnson as perhaps one of the best managers, if not the best manager in Mets history. That's debatable, of course. Uh, you hear from Tony La Russa, who I respect immensely, about Chip Hale now, about how Chip may not have gotten the best deal in Arizona. I, I know that he gets fired, and now Arizona's got a 93-win a team, and they're in the playoffs at a huge 24-game turnaround. I don't know, again, what's going on there. I don't follow the D-backs. I know there was issues last year, but uh, it seems like with a similar type of club, I know J.D. Martinez is a big part of that. That was a midseason deal, but they were playing well before that. 
with a with a similar type of club, they're in the playoffs, so maybe they pulled the plug on Hale a little too quick. Uh, I don't know. That's why you have a uh, an interview process, and Chip Hale is um, certainly someone that you have to take seriously because he came in uh, by most reports second place to Terry Collins back in 2010. So you have that name out there, and there's going to be tons of names. And I think what's most important is that everybody, the media, everybody keeps oh Alex Cora, Alex Cora. Fine, bring in Alex Cora for interview. I'm fine. I'm not anti-Alex Cora. What I don't want is the narrative to drive the process. And the, the, the danger here is, is that you have an owner. And again, go back to the article by Mark Kerrig. You have an owner that is influenced by this stuff. You have an owner that, in, in, that ha, it has been put out there in the media. This is not a Mike Silva opinion. It has been put out there in the media that needs to have a manager that he could talk baseball with. Remember, the Mets are not a corporate entity. They're a family-owned business. Not like the Dodgers, you know, even with Derek Jeter and the Marlins. These are, are venture capital dollars being put in, and it's a different management ownership hierarchy. There's different uh, uh, things at play. Fred Wilpon is, is one of the few old-school, what I mean, owners that came in when the owner and the front office and the players, it was a, a closer connection. It wasn't this money conglomerate. And he wants to be like a family business, very, very accessible to the employees. It's not somebody who's going to be remotely managing or owning this team. And, and the manager is a big part of that. And he having a connection and an ability to trust and feel good about the manager is important. And you could complain about that. And is that something that in a vacuum should be the number one or even a priority? No, but he's signing the checks and he's paying the bills. Now, does that mean you hire somebody that is the wrong guy just to appease Fred? No, that, that has happened. I mean, I think Art Howe is, is a perfect example of that. So maybe there's a way that Sandy Alderson can, can split the baby in half here, for lack of a better word, and really appease Fred. You know, Maybe Jeff Wilpon now could have a little bit more say on this and get the right guy. What I don't want is everybody to greenlight Alex Cora because the media all of a sudden has, for whatever reason, not knowing much about him, they covered him, and maybe he, I'm sure he's a smart guy, and he's getting a lot of pub. And I understand that having a connection or someone that can manage the Latino contingent of the Mets is important, but you need someone who can manage the entire roster. You need someone who really gets it, and I've been saying it, and I'll continue to say it, the things that I feel are most important for a managerial candidate. I think this is going to be a wide search. I think that they should do a wide search. I think they should really consider and turn over every rock. And I'll leave you with one thing before we get to Jim Margalis. I'll leave you with one thing. If, and we heard about it, and it's been now almost 48 hours since the Yankees lost game two, and yes, Joe Girardi made a huge blunder by not reviewing the strike three and then the subsequent grand slam, which really came to bite him. The Yankees weren't going to win this series anyway. Of course, winning game two would have made this far more interesting. It would have given the Indians their first gut check going into Yankee Stadium for game three in a five-game series, which is such a pivotal game if you're tied 1-1. If Joe Girardi is not retained because of this or any other reason, I don't know what Joe's future holds. I don't know if he wants to take time off. I don't know what he, he himself wants. And we won't know. But I will say this. I have a feeling that Joe wants to continue to manage. I have a feeling the Yankees will bring him back. 
And that's not fact. That's just opinion. But if he's okay with jumping in from the frying pan into the fire, if Joe Girardi is available in the next couple of days, I mean, he may be available as, as early as tonight. Now, I think the Yankees are going to lose. Maybe they win game three, but the Yankees are not going to go back to Cleveland. I think the Indians will, will take care of this, and I think Tanaka will get hit hard, and I think the Yankees will be swept, and, and away you go into the offseason here in New York for New York baseball. You have to, as the Mets, reach out and see what's going on and take them seriously. And here's a perfect example. I have been, and I'll, I'm not going to be a phony, I have been a Girardi critic. I thought they should have fired him pretty much very early into his tenure. He had issues. He had issues of managing the clubhouse and, and really getting a feel. And I think a lot of that, if I remember, I'm trying to think back, was the intensity of Girardi and communicating with his players. And there was so much pressure. I mean, that was a Yankees team after Joe Torre that you're having a different level of intensity coming in. So there's always that, that, that change from one to the other uh, in terms of different types of personalities. And that's a tough, from a culture standpoint, for the players sometimes to wrap their heads around. But since his issues, and I know the media doesn't like him because sometimes he lies. You saw that on Friday. I think he doesn't handle the initial reaction with the media well. He's not very quotable. He can be terse and grumpy. Uh, that's, you know what? To me, I don't care about that. The media is going to have to do their job. They're going to have to work a little harder, and they can't be running managers out of town because their job is made harder. That's not good reporting, and that's what this beat, unfortunately, has become. I think that Joe even though those are accurate descriptors of his personality. Anybody who's been in this town has watched the postgame of Joe Girardi knows that. Because he was with the Yankees, because he's had success, I think if he came across town, uh, they would at least give him some leeway on that, although it wouldn't make them uh, all that comfortable coming from Grandpa Terry to Joe Girardi. You could say all you want about Girardi, who's gotten hammered in the last 48 hours. Rightfully so. But if this was Terry Collins, I don't know if they would have been hammered as hammered as much. And this goes to show you guys, continue to listen to me on this. This is so important. You have to look back and you have to really review what is being written and why it's being written and the agenda behind everything. Not everything is factual. There's a ton of agendas there. This is why the manager being liked sometimes is important. And if you're a manager and you can get the media on your side, that's going to be a great asset. I don't know if Joe Girardi cares, but look at Girardi's resume. All the faults, the bullpen management, the rigidness, maybe sometimes the goofiness that comes with uh, Girardi. The success he's had, I understand the payroll. He's got a World Series title under his uh, belt. Uh, he's got multiple playoff appearances under his belt. And he's seen the Yankees in what you would call a pseudo-rebuild. And he's had success. And even in those years, those Yankee teams were kind of on the peripheral where you knew they weren't good enough. They probably weren't going to make the playoffs. But it wasn't like it was a disaster. Terry Collins never did that. And some of those Yankee teams weren't great. Now, maybe the Mets didn't have as good of roster, 1-25, to and certainly they didn't invest in the payroll like the Yankees did, but that's what you want to see out of a manager, maximizing what they have on the roster. Terry Collins never did that. We're not going to get into that. We've talked about that enough. So, anyway, that's my thought. Wide managerial search. I think tonight, if the Yankees lose, or if the Yankees lose, and they will lose, at any point in the next couple of days, you want to add Girardi to that mix if the Yankees decide that they just can't get past what happened on Friday night. Let's take a quick break. When I return, Jim Margalis, SouthsideSox.com. Uh, he's a writer over there, has been blogging about the White Sox for well over a decade. Who are Robin Ventura and Joe McEwing? Are these guys that the Mets fans should put at the top of their list of desires for the next Mets manager? Let's learn a little bit about them. 
as managers. We know them as players right after this. How about this? Two nights in a row, the Braves were so close to going to the World Series. 2-1 delivery. Robin Ventura! The Mets win! 4-3! There will be a game six! We're back, and uh, joining me, uh, and, and yeah, we talk Mets here, and we like to talk about what's going on in the National League, the National League East, but the season's over, and uh, a couple of former Mets have been rumored to be frontrunners for the open managerial position now that Terry Collins is no more, and did a little Google research, and it's hard to always look at what a manager is all about, but uh, Jim Margallis over at uh, Southside Sox, uh, SB Nation blog has uh, covered the White Sox for uh, over a decade, and uh, when I Googled Robin Ventura, uh, his name came up quite a bit, and get a chance to talk a little bit about uh, Ventura, McEwing, his thoughts on their the tenure over at the White Sox, and, and maybe what he thinks about them potentially uh, coming over and managing the Mets. Uh, Jim, uh, appreciate you coming on here on the weekend. Uh, first off, good uh, good morning here, and how are you? Uh, good morning, and I'm great. I'm a little surprised, uh, to be honest, that I would be talking about Robin Ventura's future future managerial positions or possibilities this early, or like, I guess this recent, uh, since he was let go from the White Sox. Yeah, and look, um, I'm with you. You know, I've read a, a, quite a bit of the stuff that you've uh, put out there about Ventura. And it sounds a lot of the complaints that you have are the complaints I had about Terry Collins in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and I agree with you. Look, Robin Ventura is, uh, you use the term Hall, a very good third baseman, 100% agree. I loved, loved Robin Ventura. And I think he was a big part of the Mets clearly going to World Series, veteran leadership, gold glove third baseman, great left-handed back, great personality. Um, and I haven't watched enough White Sox to even comment on him as a manager. They're not even on the radar here in New York, and that's not meant to be disrespectful. It's just they're not. Certainly. So yeah. looking, looking at this from afar, I see a guy who's a little bit low energy. I'm not saying that he, that's necessarily always a bad thing. Uh, can't manage a bullpen. Uh, you know, seems to have done okay with the media out there in Chicago. Very nondescript, uh, and it makes me wonder, to your point, what you just said, uh, you know, what's this all about, you know? Well, it's, uh, I guess to understand Ventura's tenure is to kind of understand who he replaced. He replaced Ozzie Guillen, and, and the very end of the Ozzie Guillen uh, tenure with the White Sox was very uh, dramatic and um, you know, volatile, and there was you know infighting between the manager and general manager and Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, the owner, chairman. He operates from a, uh, he's very loyal, and he's very loyal to both Guillen and Kenny Williams, the GM at the time, so you know, he didn't want to fire any of them, and basically it got to the point where Ozzy said, you know, either fire Kenny or I'm out of here. And so he arranged an exit to, you know, Kenny stayed, uh, Ozzy arranged an exit to Miami. And so the White Sox were looking for somebody who was, you know, as happens so often in managerial changes, the opposite again. And uh, Ventura was that in, in terms of both his demeanor uh, and, and also his experience. They basically hired him off the couch. Uh, they brought him back briefly in the organization for, you know, a few months in, uh, at the end of the 2012 season, 
or in the 2011 season, sorry, to uh, you'll be a special assistant and learn the farm system a bit and, and be involved in that level. And then all of a sudden he was uh, out of complete surprise. Nobody, he was on nobody's board. He, ba- he basically was hired before the White Sox even started the process. Like everybody was anticipating, okay, we're going to, you know, put together a list and see the possibilities and get an idea of who's going to be in the interview. And all of a sudden Ventura was the guy. And, uh, and basically it was, the first year or so of Ventura's stay was very refreshing because Ozzy had really slacked off at the end. It became more about his competition with Kenny Williams. His lineups went to crap. Uh, Adam Dunn and Alex Rios had historically bad seasons. He played them every day. There was spite in his managing. And so to go to, from Ozzy to Ventura was to go to somebody who actually wanted to kind of see the White Sox win, or at least had that as the priority over, um, you know, over, I guess, sending messages upstairs. And so, you know, Adam Dunn was playing poorly. He got benched. Uh, you know, they were, he wasn't managing based on salaries and such. And that worked out pretty well. And then September came around, the White Sox were contending. They're actually in first place for most of the season. And his inexperience showed in that the September roster has expanded. And all of a sudden, I think he lost a sense of who was supposed to be on the roster in the first place. Cause he was pitching all these triple a guys or, or, you know, pinch hitting, you know, defensive replacements, et cetera putting all these AAA guys in really awful positions, you know, like high leverage positions and, and, uh, and they lost lead and so forth. And so from there he thought, you know, okay, decent season, obviously the learning experience. And then you'd think that, you know, he'd improve and, and for some reason just kind of stagnated there. He never really showed, you know, the second uh, stage in his development that he'd want to see from the manager. And because the White Sox are loyal, they didn't fire him for uh, another four years and that's four straight losing seasons. Interesting, and uh, I'm curious your thoughts, because I really thought to myself, you know, how do you describe, because people always say to me, well, who do you want to manage? And, uh, and look, I'm not in the interviews. You're not in the interviews. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not calling the shots. You know, you look at this, and it's not just, and you make great points, pinch hitting, defensive replacements. To me, there are three things, and I'm, that's, I've, I want to get your thoughts, because you sound like you, you kind of look at things a little bit deeper than just the surface. Uh, number one, they got to manage the clubhouse, and the White Sox had a couple issues, uh, well, well-documented mm-hmm. issues. And that doesn't mean be their friend. It means accountability. It means kind of knowing your personnel, partnering in the right way with your stars. They got to manage the media. I, you could comment on that. Terry Collins did a great job. And part of managing the media, uh, unfortunately, is they like you and, and you make their jobs easier. And, and I understand that, but it bothers me sometimes. The third piece, even if you do the first two, if you can't manage a bullpen in today's game, and if anybody's watched the playoffs the last couple of nights, it's becoming a bigger thing, and it's not uh, a boilerplate. It's not paint-by-numbers anymore. you really got to know what you're doing. If you can't manage a bullpen, then the other two don't matter, and you're not going to be successful. And to me, it sounds like Ventura may have done okay on the first two, um, and at least I've seen a lot of talk, uh, at least from the, 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 the major media outlets, that at times his bullpen management or even going too long with a starter were, were big issues. Oh, yeah. To speak to your first point with the clubhouse, that was one of the reasons why Rick Hahn, who is now the GM, uh, replacing Kenny Williams. Kenny Williams is now the president of, uh, or vice president of uh, uh, baseball ops. Uh, you know, Rick Hahn defended the decision to keep him by saying he was very good at keeping the clubhouse. You know, basically his, you know, he could be optimized from 7 to 10 p.m. Um, but, you know, before and after games, you know, you couldn't question his uh, abilities. And then the Adam LaRoche thing happens and the Chris Sale jersey slashing thing happens. And that might have been like a Chris Sale problem, but they had butted heads before. And, and uh, Ventura, to his credit, uh, he always was the adult in the situation. He never um, tipped his hand. He never talked about private conversations or private discipline or anything like that. 
uh, sale tended to go to the media or be loud enough to be heard by the media through doors. And Ventura uh, was not that guy. But, uh, you know, I guess that last, um, you know, characteristic or positive selling point of Ventura's tenure basically went by the wayside because these two uh, flare-ups became national and in LaRoche's case, an international story about uh, children in the workplace, which is really bizarre. I was not expecting that. Um, you know, for the bullpen, he likes to ride his starters. And with the White Sox, they had a very good starting rotation. Uh, Salem, Quintana, and Jeff Samarja, and uh, you know John Danks when he was you know reliable, and and so he could go to a starter three times through the order, maybe even into the fourth time through the order. Uh, but when those starters started to show some you know, wear and tear, John Danks was kind of a shell of himself by the end. Uh, Samarja was shaky. You know, as, as these guys wore down, and, and the White Sox needed to get every game. Uh, you know, because they're in the fringe of contention, uh, it really showed how, I guess, loath he was to use his relievers. And, and then when he had an order in his bullpen, towards the end, it, w- it was just using the same guys in the same order, no matter how well they were pitching and, and no matter, you know, I guess how, yeah, you know, more than hot and cold streaks, just how, how much they're struggling at swings and misses and how much their stuff was lacking. And that was really a strange development because uh, I think it was 2013, 2014, uh, the White Sox really didn't have a set bullpen order, and Ventura showed some aptitude in, in responding to it and, and, and shaking his order around and uh, operating okay without a set closer until one became evident. You know, he showed some flexibility and such, and so you're kind of, at least from my perspective, I was optimistic that he would develop into something kind of, I guess, uh, sabermetrically friendly in which he you know, responds to leverage and not so much save situations. But that kind of went uh, away, and, and by the end, it was really hard to, aside from somebody who was professional until the very end, and I think Ventura, you, know, you can say all you want about him, but he was a very, you know, he was always the adult in the room, basically, no matter what happened. And, uh, and, and he didn't lose any dignity or respect when it came to just his, his standing as a person. It was more just his acumen as manager, which just kind of didn't really show anything by the end. And, and the White Sox being how they are and being as loyal as they are, they basically made him fire himself. <laughs> they said, like, well, you can come back if you want. And, and I guess it had been settled for a month that Ventura wasn't coming back, but they just didn't have the uh, stomach or the guts to fire him. And, and so he basically had to say, I'm not good enough for this, which I guess is, you know, like I said, being the adult in the room and, and taking responsibility and others wouldn't. But, uh, yeah, it just didn't leave me thinking like there's a great manager here. And, and you know, I, I don't want to you know, give absolutes because we've seen them time and time again, guys learn from their first managing jobs, you know, and, and unsuccessful first forays in the position. So I don't want to say he won't be, but I just didn't see anything there. And it's interesting. Uh, I mentioned the media. It sounds like he handled them well because when you really – and, again, I'm doing Google searches here because I'm not out in Chicago, so you could comment on that. You're probably mm-hmm. one of the biggest critics of Ventura that comes up when you bring up Rob Ventura. I mean, uh, it sounds like he got along with the media, and although maybe they felt the job wasn't completely competent, um, that goes a long way. There's not a lot of criticism of him, despite, uh, too, like you said, the LaRoche thing was interesting because, you know, it's a precedent-setting type of thing for other big league stars. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a lot there. I didn't realize how much there was there. And the White Sox, I guess the other part of that, they weren't, you know, people don't talk about them. They've lost 90-plus games quite a few times, but they're not bad. They don't have bad talent. Maybe they, they're, they're short on a few things. It's not like this was a train wreck roster during his tenure. Yeah, I think, you know, th- there are two things. One is that, you know, you won't see a lot of cr- criticism about Ventura because, you know, I guess I look at games more on decision, you know, especially when the White Sox are contending. 
I like to look at decisions and, and where games were, uh, you know, the make or break decisions that go along the course of nine innings. So, you know, that's more of style of my writing. And so, you know, maybe uh, newspapers won't pick up on that. And also I'm writing as a fan, or at least, you know, I, I try to channel fans and, and try to speak to them. And so, uh, you know, one of the biggest criticisms about Ventura was that, uh, you know, from the fan level, was that he really didn't show a lot of emotion, didn't really show a lot of responses. He would, uh, you know, if the White Sox made errors, he didn't chew anybody out. He didn't, uh, you didn't see him talking to anybody and addressing anybody in public. Uh, you know, the benchings were slow and such towards the end. And, um, you know, I think that can be carried overboard pretty easily and that any kind of shouting manager is going to have a pretty short shelf life. But, um, you know, the, the running joke was that, you know, anytime Ventura had to explain something that went wrong, he would just say, it's one of those where... You know, it was just kind of this uh, <laughs> a little bit of passive voice uh, explanation and not really, um, you know, and that's where I get back to the point of like acumen and learning. It wasn't a sense that, you know, he was learning or taking these decisions or wrong turns personally. It was just more a matter of like this happened and uh, it went wrong and it's just one of those things. That was his catchphrase. And so it, that became a little bit frustrating after a while, seeing the same mistakes being made over and over again. It's like, it's not one of those things. It's many of those same things. So, uh, you know, that's, I guess that's where, you know, my writing may differ when reading about it, but uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, he was always professional and, and the White Sox, because the front office had a lot of swings and misses with free agents, um, you know, Smarja was disappointing. He was a trade, but disappointing. Uh, LaRoche was a disaster. Uh, you know, and before him, Dunn and Rios were disasters, and, and, and at least initially, Rios kind of salvaged himself. Dunn never really came through. Jeff Kepinger really fell flat. Deanna Navarro was a disaster. Alex Avila didn't work out. Like, they had a bunch of these high-profile free agent swings and misses that really left them a, a studs and duds team. Uh, Stars and Scrubs, where you had you know, Jose Abreu, Chris Sale, uh, Adam Eaton, Jose Quintana uh, doing the heavy lifting, but not really getting a whole lot of support. So, and, and based on the way that these players have come to the White Sox and had a hard time finding jobs afterwards, it was hard to blame Ventura for that part of the equation. Yeah, and you know, the Mets have had that issue. They, you know, teams, especially when they're on a budget, they'll build rosters, 8, 10 you know, superstars, and then the, the final 15 spots are the you know, the dartboard, you know, the value equation. And uh, I don't think you could do that anymore. I mean, again, if this playoffs is showing anything, uh, one, uh, the old paint-by-numbers bullpen, your seven, eight, nine guy, which if you get three closers, I guess you could do that. That's becoming harder. Uh, you really need a manager that knows what they're doing. And I, I think it dispels, and I don't know if that's going on in Chicago because it happens here a lot with Alderson. Well, the front office is dictating the lineup. The front office is dictating a lot. And I said to myself, well, Terry Collins was just fired, and one of the issues was they didn't like how he was running things. I can't imagine, and I laugh all the time when people say that. I'm like, do you guys think, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm not in the dugout, there's a phone in the dugout, or this is Stratomatic where there's a, like a little app, and they're just telling you know, the manager, hey, you got to do this right now, because I don't think that's what's going on, and if that's what people think is going to happen, then you know, maybe then the front office should sit in the computer in the office like uh, in a remote area like it's, like, it's, uh, like it's war and just like you know hit – hit a button and things happen. Like, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding and that's not mainstream all the time. That's also the, the blogosphere and the fans and things like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, with Rick Renteria taking over this year, um, you know, the White Sox were, um, yeah, they were a rebuilding team. They lost, um, you know, they won 67 games. So it's, it's like they were never, they didn't have the same expectations that Ventura's club had. So it was hard to do an apples apples comparison between the two. Uh, but the two things that jumped out were one that uh, Renteria seemed to show more whimsy with his lineups, like, oh, let's give this a shot. You know, it's, it wasn't maybe optimal, 
from a, a run scoring standpoint, you know, might have a low OBP guy up top or, you know, um, guys on hot streak, you know, heading in seventh, but there's more kind of, let's see what happens more. Um, you see the pants experimentation that, that, you know, after Ventura being somewhat rigid with his roles was kind of refreshing. And, and there's also the matter of energy in that, you know, there is a catchphrase Hawk Harrelson coined that Ricky's boys don't quit. And yeah, that, that kind of, it was very fun to watch. Like for a rebuilding season, there were a lot of games that are more interesting than they had a right to be. And I think it's credit to Ventura, but I also, on the other side of the coin, you know, kind of wondered, well, they aren't quitting where Ventura's boys quitting where you know, is that the, is there an inverse to draw there? Maybe isn't zero sum like that, but um, you know, there was a kind of uh, sense that everybody just stopped responding uh, to him. And, and uh, based on the differences between how guys are being deployed and such, I think it was really a, you know, managerial choice in, in how these players are being deployed, especially like, um, you know, as Ozzie Guinn is precedent uh, that last three months that he was in Chicago and the White Sox were on the, on the fringe of wildcard contending. And, you know, Kenny Williams had to come out and say like, stop playing Adam Dunn. Like, <laughs> stop, you know, I, I understand I made a mistake here. This guy's a disaster. Stop. You know, you know, you don't have to use salaries to dictate, um, you know, uh, lineup spots and, and, and starts and such Alejandro Diaz. Um, you know, he was a better option at the time. Don Viciedo was a better option at the time. Like use these guys. And he didn't, he was basically like sticking his middle finger up to the front office and, and, and trying to force something to happen. So if the White Sox had that kind of power, they would have used it years ago in this case. So I think Ventura is just more, he's uh, somebody who likes to kind of set it and forget it. And I think in some cases where you have a, um, you know, like say a, a, a Washington type situation or St. Louis type situation, where you have a lot of talent and you just need a steady hand, somebody who doesn't upset players or, or rock the boat too much. Uh, I think he might be a fine choice, but I think a lot of guys would be a fine choice for that case. If you need somebody to get extra wins out of a team, uh, I don't think he's necessarily the best choice based on what he showed in Chicago. And you just said Alejandro Diaz is a better lineup choice. Do you know how many Mets fans are banging their head against the wall here in that one? So that's a funny thing. Oh, well, he, <laughs> yeah, he was a, he was a fine player for the White Sox for a number of years, but yeah, he yeah he did have some some problems in the base paths and such. So when he started stopped producing, fans turned on him pretty quickly. So you just you you made earlier a great point about how they had the Ozzy Guillen, and then uh, you go to a different personality. And also, baseball is a copycat sport. Uh, every time mm-hmm. I remember the the ultimate copycat was back when the Florida Marlins back then they were the Florida Marlins won the World Series with Castillo and Juan Pierre at the top of the top of the lineup. Everybody's like, well, you can't you got to win now with speed like it's the 1985 uh, Cardinals again. So people try to copy that. And then it's like, well, mm-hmm. you got to win with home runs. Or you got to win with like a, a three closer. So everybody copycats. So the ultimate copycat is, and it usually it has to do with the owner of the team. You you get tired of one personality, so you go with the exact opposite. The Mets did that with Art Howe after Bobby Valentine. Now, I don't know if you could really articulate Joe McEwing. I've spoken to Joe McEwing when, many years ago when he was in, I believe, Double A. Uh, so I'd have to go back and really listen to that and get a feel of him. But he's, he's you know, old school, they describe, which is a narrative, but he's got a little bit different energy than a Robin Ventura. Here's a guy that had a fight to be on a roster. Maybe he wasn't the most talented. Uh, he's definitely in demand. He's going to go on, on multiple managerial interviews. Do you have any take on that? Because in a lot of ways, um, that plays into it, personality. And, and I don't know exactly where the Mets are going to go with that. But McEwing, who may be the exact same thing as Ventura, but disseminate that information completely different, you know, that, that may come into play here. I'm curious your thoughts on McEwing because he's a bench coach or he's a base coach. It's harder to get a feel of him uh, in that sense. 
Yeah, it's you know he, he survived the uh, change from Robin Ventura to uh, you know Rick Renteria. So I think the White Sox hold him in, in high esteem for what he does, and, and uh, he's always been considered very diligent when it comes to um, you know I guess the spring training part and, and the you know, pregame prep and, and scouting and and, and uh, you know going over video and, and scouting reports and so forth. You know he's hard worker and such. So yeah, I think that carries over from role to role and he's played a few between bench coach and third base coach and such. Um, he was one of those guys, he was in the White Sox organization, uh, climbing the ladder as a coach. And he was one of those, you know, who were considered maybe a potential replacement for Ozzie Gian or, you know, and he had jobs have been floated elsewhere. And all of a sudden Robin Ventura gets this job. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he did, he did join Ventura's staff, but it was, it was like, well, why isn't McEwing a better choice? You know, he has experience. He's been doing this for a while. He's shown that he wants to. Uh, that was the other question with Ventura was like, yeah, that dogged him throughout the, his career is that um, when he was hired, they basically asked, did he even want to do this? Did the White Sox had to convince him to do it? And, and that kind of dogged him for the rest of his career because he didn't show a whole lot of energy and such. And, and uh, at, at Sox Fest one year, the fan convention, a fan actually asked him, like, you know, do you have a pulse <laughs> to his face? And, and Ventura did, <laughs> like, and, and you could see Ventura's face change. Uh, and and, uh, and and shut the fan down. And it was kind of like it, I was happy to be in the room because I, I think you just kind of sensed the the tension there that was uh, was fascinating. I don't think you would have gotten that from a from video or um, you know audio or whatever. But uh, that was always the the question of Ventura. And McEwing has always been the uh, kind of the optimal traditional manager in waiting, where he's he's coached up the ladder. He's gotten rave reviews for all his work in the minor league system. Uh, you know, did all the work as a coach and, you know, he is a bit old school, but he also has a hand in the White Sox shifting more and being more along the lines of, you know, kind of optimizing the defense for uh, pull strategies and pitchers and such. The White Sox were a lot more active. And I think that kind of is reflected by the, um, you know, the manager in a sense, because Ventura, when he took over from Guillen, they shifted more and then he became a bit more lax in that regard. Renteria took over, they started shifting more. So, I don't think he has a whole hand in how much they shift, but he's had a big part in how they go about doing it and, and arranging the fielders as such. So he has some sabermetric cred there. Uh, I think if he took over, he'd be somebody who you consider traditional, but I think he deserves a chance to, you know, and I think a lot of guys are in the same boat where uh, they deserve a chance to show what they can do actually being the main voice in a dugout because uh, the players do respect him. You know, no players have ever had a problem with him. And he's also been, you know, coming up the lines uh, in the ranks in the minor leagues. He's been somebody who does, um, you know, have a sense of, um, you know, order about a dugout and such. So he's not a pushover. So it'd be nice to see what he could do because everybody's been saying for years that he would be a fine choice to be the, the main voice. Yeah, interesting. And uh, by the way, I've got a couple more here. But uh, Jim Margallis, uh, Southside Sox, uh, at Jim Margallis on Twitter, talking a little bit about Robin Ventura and what's been going on with the White Sox uh, over the last few years, uh, Joe McEwing. Uh, it's interesting, Jim, because you guys have uh, a new manager, and you talked a little bit about it, but I, it's not like – and I've been watching baseball since the mid-'80s. I'm, I'm not that old, but it used to be when there was a big market, Chicago, New York, L.A., the first thing you would do, any sport, you'd look for the big name, Lou Pinella. In the NBA, it was always Phil Jackson or Pat Riley. That's not the case in baseball anymore. Like it's a, it's a you could see the change. Like who's the next great manager? Who's the next guy that's going to be looked at like Jim Leland or Tony Larusa? Is it Joe McEwing? Mm -hmm. Is it? I mean, remember Tony Larusa got fired too. I don't you know. I was not in Chicago. I don't know if you were too young or if you were around. You no, know, I guess the White Sox didn't think very much about Larusa back in the eighties, and he did okay. <laughs> that was that, a so. 
That was Hawk Harrelson as GM. That was Hawk Harrelson's yeah, one right. year as the general manager. <laughs> yeah, right, that's true. <laughs> that, that showed why it was only was only one year. <laughs> and Hawk, I mean, I, you, you may love him over there, but it's hard on the other side. He could be hard to take. But it, I don't, you know, again, that's what I said earlier, what I look for in a manager. I mean, and I think the fact that you can't just say it's five games one way or the other. I think it's important because I think that they set the tone on the field. I think that the fans underrate it. Maybe it's a little overrated by the media, um, but we're in a, a unprecedented times. You know, who's going to be uh, considered a good manager? I mean, Yankees fans this weekend want to fire Joe Girardi. I think he's okay. Now, he made a, a bad yeah. move the other night, but um, uh, what do you think? I mean, it's interesting because it's so hard for me to say this is the guy I want because I don't know. If Lou Pinella 15 years ago was available, that's the guy I would want maybe. You know, so it's interesting. I'd like to get your take from a, an out-of-towner's point of view. Well, I think with the White Sox, you know, they've – typically hired first-time managers. Ozzie Gein was a first-time manager. Jerry Manuel was a first-time manager. You're familiar with him. Oh, uh, Robin good Matura, God. First time. Oh, good God. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you really made everybody. First day, Oz, and now Jerry Manuel. Jerry Manuel had a good yeah. few weeks in the U.S. But, and and uh, I think Jeff Torborg, too. Not yeah. a strength. Not a big yeah, Jeff Torborg, too. You like oh, your <laughs> former White Sox managers. It's, it's nuts. Um, but I think with the White Sox, they tend to hire first-time guys because they have a very entrenched pitching system. Don Cooper has been the pitching coach for years, and he's been in the system for decades. Uh, it's a top-down approach. The White Sox kind of use Cooper to set the agenda for the minor leagues and for scouting and such. So he's entrenched. And I think when you, uh, you, know, when you look at hiring a veteran manager, at least for the White Sox side, they would want to hire their own pitching coach probably. Uh, Renteria was a, an exception. Um, he managed one year with the Cubs, and then they, uh, they brought him over as the bench coach uh, for Ventura in his final year. And, uh, you know, Renteria was, I, I guess maybe he, you know, because he was only there for one year at the Cubs and didn't really, it was in a rebuilding year there. He didn't really get a chance to uh, have his own kind of success there. Uh, he didn't really have a say in who he could manage or, you know, who he wanted to, you know, hire and fire. But Cooper is very important. And, and that might be the case with more teams. Like you look at the Indians and their throwing program, for instance, although Francona is a very strong choice in his own right. But I, I think with veteran managers, they want to bring in their own guys. And I think teams might be more of an organizational uh, approach where they have their hitting coach they want, they have their um, you know they have their offensive approach they want, they have their pitchers, they have their you know training staff, biomechanics, whatever. Uh, they have guys they want to look for, and so when they hire a manager, they want somebody who fits in with what they're kind of already doing, and maybe is the guy who sets the tone for the clubhouse and and you know makes the uh, you know helps turn the 25 man roster into a winning product, but maybe doesn't kind of set the you know I guess overarching. Uh, agenda or program for you know further down the line that might be more of an organizational thing so at least with the White Sox that's how I see it happening and and that's how it's been and and uh, you know with, with the way Cooper has had success with pitchers and, and this year is a bit of an exception but they're you know they've been exceptionally healthy as pitchers um, you can kind of see the point in the White Sox doing it the way they have all right last question I'm curious because here in New York I mean I don't really hate the Yankees like I used to when I was young do I want to see the Yankees celebrate no do I get a kick out of them getting tweaked and, and having a, a terrible loss in the playoffs, of course? But, okay, in Chicago, White Sox, Cubs, I don't know if it's quite the same, but you have the Cubs with the 100-year curse being broken, and now they're going for back-to-back. Uh, you got Chris Sale struggling in the playoffs, and it sounds like things didn't end well over there. I mean, as a White Sox fan, do you root against the Cubs? Is their Cubs hate? Do you hate the fact that if the, the Red Sox win and Chris Sale's the reason that, you know— that's kind of like a, a, a dagger. But like what is what is the White Sox perspective this postseason on those kind of things? Well, 
I think the, uh, the they've always been a little brother to the Cubs, like like the Mets, the Yankees, and it's it's always been frustrating. And there's a there's a big divide between classes and uh, you know the um, you know media coverage, and you know it's it's very much a little brother big brother relationship in all senses. And even when the White Sox had the drought, it's like they you know the the, the Cubs were lovable losers. The White Sox are just losers. <laughs> when they both uh, the White Sox couldn't spin their failures into success, even a cult kind of success, the way the Cubs did. So I was just like you know what's the you know we couldn't understand why everybody loved them because they were just as bad in in and. And, and not as interesting on the field, but, you know, they have Wrigley, they have Harry Carey and Harry Carey, you know, for instance, was a, he started with the White Sox, you know, he got his TV fame with the White Sox, then jumped over the Cubs and became this whole, you know, national phenomenon with WGN and such. So it's just been, the White Sox have always been on the wrong end of every kind of business decision, every kind of uh, city decision, that kind of thing. And, and so there's just uh, decades of resentment. So, uh, you know, the, the hate runs deep there. I tend to be more, I get tired of them, but I have some friends who are decent Cubs fans. Like the Cubs fans I know are decent. Like I can have baseball conversations with them. So when the Cubs won, I was like, I'm happy for so-and-so because I at least knew what they were going through personally, and I can relate to it on that level. But uh, when it comes to the rest of the postseason, Chris Sale kind of, you know, I think everybody saw that, you know, they're – it wasn't going to work out. And, and so they don't wish him poorly, um, but maybe they don't wish, want him to win the Cy Young just because they want, you know, their face to be rubbed into it. But I think, you know, my stance with sales that I'd like to see him make the hall of fame. He's on that track. It's fun when former white Sox make the hall of fame, like Tim Raines, he was, you know, not the player he was at the Expos and such, but he was played some key roles on good teams. Fun to see him go in with sale. He was fun to watch. He was appointment viewing. I, I root for him ultimately, even if like, I don't want him to have a seamless transition to the Red Sox. You know, you know, maybe the White Sox, what they did wrong with them was so easy to fix. That'd be frustrating in that case. I think uh, the Yankees right now are kind of a White Sox spinoff in a way because they have Robertson, Canely and Frazier. Yeah, I'm familiar with those characters. So I'm kind of interested to see how they do. But ultimately I think at the postseason, especially in the American league, if you have the Indians, Yankees, Astros, Red Sox, especially, you know, in the way it's looking, Indians, Astros, that's a, that's a hell of an ALCS. And I really don't care who wins. I just want to go seven. So I think in that case, you know, it's, I, uh, go ahead. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, and I was going to, and I know you got to go, but Todd Frazier, an interesting name, local guy, free agent, Mets might need a third baseman. I'm not crazy about the metrics I see. I mean, he's had some good runs with Cincinnati hitters ballpark defensively he does a lot of little things it seems well what do you think of Todd Frazier I mean is he I know the contract would depend on it but um is he a little underrated because he's basically a 210 hitter the last couple of years he's adequate like you you wouldn't get too excited about him hits a lot of pop-ups and such so a lot of his at-bats and in frustrating fashion but he's got power and he plays good defensive third base um you know he's he's a I think a good veteran guy to have in the clubhouse. And that was one of the things with the LaRoche thing is that, you know, he was perceived that either Frazier or Jimmy Rollins or such said like, why is this kid in the clubhouse all the time? Why is he in our drills? <laughs> so I think there was some professionalism there that uh, the White Sox maybe were lacking and, and caused some friction. But I, I think he's a, uh, uh, you know, he's for a one-year contract. I, I think I wouldn't go, want to go long-term with him, but if, you can do worse, and the White Sox have done worse. And so Frazier, even though he hit in the low 200s and popped up a ton, did hit 40 homers, played a good third base, and did solve that hole. Uh, and I think if you're looking at a complete abyss at third base, uh, he's somebody who is a noted and noticeable improvement. But I think if you're looking for somebody to push a team over the top, he's not that guy. Right. And you know what's interesting? Well, another thing that just came to my mind that the, you brought up Chris Sale, 
there was also that controversy with sale to the bullpen one of Ventura, right? So uh, yeah, there was that a, was that, sales you know, that, that we didn't really talk about. That was another whole thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that was his first, like, health scare, I think. And Ventura being new to the thing, that was his first, like, my career is in this guy's hands. Or his career is in my hands, I should say. And so when he had some elbow issues and, and Sale being the way he throws in his build, everybody's afraid his elbow is going to explode. Um, yeah, I guess he took that very seriously. He took that too seriously. And it, and it required Sale uh, going over the top and, and appealing directly to Kenny Williams and basically getting into a screaming match. And, and that's a common theme over the, you know, the last several years of sale is that he had to solve a lot of problems through screaming. Um, you know, and then he restored, he went back to the rotation and, and ultimately it's worked out in terms of you know, multiple all-star appearances, Cy Young finishes, etc. So I think that was a bit of an aberration just because it was Ventura's first uh, time dealing with an injury and a, and a significant one. But I think that showed the mistake the White Sox made in hiring somebody who just hadn't been, in those decisions, like even at a bench coach level or a minor league level, we're actually having to play guys through pain or, you know, uh, side to sit guys, et cetera. That's where his newness really showed off. That really didn't uh, appear again. You know, that kind of injury, um, you know, I guess, uh, dilemma slash controversy. uh, That was one thing that didn't didn't end up repeating on him. Well, listen, uh, I didn't realize the kinship we could have. I mean, we could do an hour on Torborg and Jerry Manuel. I mean, uh, the name oh, you yeah. brought up, Alejandro Diaz. <laughs> Alejandro Diaz. I mean, the the best name you brought up are McEwing and Ventura. And Ventura, I don't know if after talking to you and after reading about it, I don't know as much as I love him as a third baseman, I don't know if he's the answer, of course. So anyway, you've been generous yeah. at your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. At Okay, by the way, so at uh, you know southsidesocks.com, at Jim Margalis on Twitter. Anything else you want to pop before uh, uh, I let you go on with your weekend? Also at Southside Socks on Twitter, and we have a podcast too, the Southside Socks podcast, available where podcasts are available. Uh, yep, Jerry, Ma- I'll come on talk about Jerry Manuel with you if you ever want. So if you ever have uh, a right. bad air that you want to, <laughs> oh, good stuff. <laughs> All right, man, enjoy your, the rest of your weekend. Good stuff and appreciate it. Take care, my friend. You too. Jim Margalis, SouthsideSox.com, SB Nation blog. Uh, interesting stuff. Let's uh, take a quick break. I have some final thoughts. I want to talk a little bit about Jay Bruce real quick. I know I got into the managerial stuff in the uh, front end before uh, Jim came on. And I want to give you an idea about a free agent. If the Mets are going to just go after one free agent, I want to give you an idea of where my mind is at. And it's not Jay Bruce because I think that's going to be, at least in the near term, because of what's been going on in the series with the Yankees, the popular name that Mets fans might want to have a, a reunited situation. I have a name that I've been looking at for a while, and there's a lot to that. So let's take a quick break, come back, final thoughts, talk a little bit about that, wrap up, and uh, we'll be back right after this. Hey, Mets fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. Now the pitch. 
Swung on, hit high, hit deep to left center, it is gone! Jay Bruce has come through again. He's tied the game at eight with a solo blast to the bleachers in left center. And finally, the Indians get to David Robertson. We're back as I wrap up today's show, and uh, really good segment. I had a lot of fun there with Jim Margallis, and uh, you don't get a chance to talk often on this podcast with bloggers from outside the bubble, outside the Mets bubble. So to get a feel of what he thinks a good manager is, what he thinks about Ventura and Ewing, and I almost, and I forgot, I mean, all the kinship you really have with uh, the White Sox, with the uh, former managers of guys like Jerry Manuel and Jeff Torborg and, and things like that, so... Interesting segment. Appreciate with uh, with you know Jim taking some time out on a weekend to to do that uh, in his busy schedule. And he made a point that in the open I alluded to, but I didn't really even realize I was alluding to it. And it happens so often in sports in general, not just in baseball, but but the manager when a manager gets fired, the next guy having the exact opposite personality than that that prior manager becomes a big theme. You saw it when Pat Riley left. When Pat Riley quit, they brought Don Nelson in the Knicks, and Don Nelson could not be the exact opposite of Pat Riley. And that was that was lauded early, uh, very very early, and for a very short time in his tenure. And, and they realized that that wasn't what the that Knicks team needed. Uh, and that's a whole separate situation. There was other things there that, that prevented Don Nelson from being successful. But you know, even with the Yankees, I mentioned Girardi. Girardi's a totally different personality than Joe Torre. Uh, you know, with the Mets, Terry Collins. Uh, you definitely know. Well, you start with Willie and Jerry Manuel. Everyone loved Jerry Manuel because he was much more quotable and cool. And I mean, Jerry Manuel was a far worse manager than Willie Randolph was. I mean, that turned out to be a bad move, even though for the first few weeks it seemed to be working. Uh, and the question is, did the Mets turn things around in 2008 and, and get things going because Willie Randolph and Rick Peterson were fired? I don't think so. I think that the fact that Tony Bernazard was creating problems, and those went away when Jerry Manuel came back in, and I think there was a lot of dissension with, with backstabbing and both Manuel and Bernazard trying to get both Omar and, and Willie's jobs. Uh, I think that had a lot to do with it because then the harmony and the, and, and the discontent goes away. Well, you know, that's not the point. The point is you don't want to just hire somebody because they're the exact opposite of what Terry Collins was. That's why you don't want to just hire Joe McEwing because he's emotional. The fans, you know, I know they want emotion and they want to feel like a manager cares. I told you, there's the three things. If the guy, whether you visually see it or not, manages that clubhouse, you know, managing the media also falls into that, you know, maybe you don't always get the right quote or the right feel. That's the PR. That's the public persona. That's important, less important, unless they're going to eat you up because of it. And that could happen. And then it's the bullpen. And and I don't know, but you did not get a lot of of good feels from Ventura. You know, McEwing is relatively unknown. He falls into the, the Alex Cora era uh, of, uh, uh, you know, Alex Cora, you know, you know, ma- mantra. You, you don't know. I mean, everyone might like him for the wrong reason. So a lot of stuff there. And as the month goes on, uh, like I said, I don't know if we're going to have podcasts weekly because you really want to do something newsworthy, but I'll try to get other out-of-towners. Maybe we'll find out a little bit about Chip Hale. Maybe, 
maybe there's a there's a lot we can we can dive into here and learn a little bit from competitive bloggers or writers or things like that. As you heard coming back from the commercial, you heard Jay Bruce's game-tying home run for the Indians, and I think everybody now, a year later, when at this time last year, everybody couldn't wait to run Jay Bruce out of town for just any middle reliever, and I think I as well was on that. But I've learned a little bit about Jay Bruce, watching him over the course of a season. He really won me over in spring training when he basically told the reporters, hey, we'll do respect. I don't care what you guys think. I don't care what the fans think. I know what I could do. You guys aren't going to swallow me up here in New York, despite you thinking that's what happened last, you know, the prior year in 2016. Had a very nice season for the Mets. Uh, he's a run producer. I think he's a guy that's shown when given the opportunity, he hasn't been given many of those opportunities in his career, can come up with a big hit. He has his flaws, both offensively and defensively. And he's certainly a guy that I think the Mets, uh, you know, should think about going back out and bringing back. Now, here's the thing. You do run the risk, and I said this when they traded off veterans. When you trade veterans for something, just because they're free agents, to get something in the organization, an asset, you run the risk that they go somewhere else, they fall in love, and they want to stay there, and it becomes that much harder to resign them. Bruce probably falls into that category. He wins a World Series of the Indians, and I don't know what the Indians' budget is or what they're looking to do. It's going to become that much harder to pull them away. Ohio guy, Cincinnati, he's probably going to say, why would I go back to New York? But listen. Anything can happen. With that said, and I, I teased this right after the Margalis interview before we went to commercial, the guy that I continue to look at, if the Mets are only going to be able to sign one impact bat in free agency, you have Bruce, you have Moustakis, you have uh, the third guy, and that's the guy I'm looking at is Eric Hosmer. I don't know what Eric Hosmer is going to get. It's going to be $20-plus million. I understand he's a first baseman, and I understand from reading a little bit up about him that the defensive metrics – the advanced defensive metrics don't don't paint this kind of picture about Hosmer as the gold glove or I guess the visual one does. All I know is this is a guy that wants to win, has been on a world's champion. I felt he was one of the leaders of the Royals. I, you know, you saw what kind of heads up player he is when he made that play in game five of the twenty fifteen World Series. He has a pedigree, he has the mindset. I feel like that's a guy that would be a leader here that could make a difference. He plays a position where, yes, you have Dominic Smith, a young player, but Dominic Smith didn't show you much. Dominic Smith, and you heard Russ, Russ Langer, uh, you heard Russ Langer allude to it. You had actually Russ Langer allude to the issues Pedro Lopez had. If you go back to that June interview, uh, he may be a guy that's going to pop some home runs against bad to mediocre pitching or average pitching. He's going to struggle a little bit with the bat consistently. And I didn't see a hell of a lot in the field from him to make me get excited about his defense. I understand it's a, a small sample size and, uh, and what have you, but if you're going to go into the season with both Rosario and Dominic Smith as your shortstop and first baseman, uh, I don't know if you could consider yourself a contending team. I'm fine with Rosario because you have Cabrera coming back, but I would feel better if you have Reyes coming back on that or a veteran that could st- step in and play every day and not have a huge drop-off, not a guy that's a, a veteran that really can't be an everyday player, because if something happens, um, you know, Rosario just is just not ready. And, and, and you know, the, the year after sophomore slump that you saw with Conforto that they have to address, you need someone that could step in. And uh, Hosmer, I think, would alleviate the clumsiness that bringing a Jay Bruce back creates. Conforto's going to be back. May not be back opening day. He's going to be back. I don't know if Conforto's a center fielder. He's done an adequate job defensively there. You have Cespedes. 
do you prefer the def- the defense of Ligaris? You have Cespedes in left. You maybe have a lefty complement like Nimmo for Ligaris in center. You have Conforto in right. You put Hosmer at first. You go out and you figure out if Cabrera is your second baseman or your third baseman because you don't know what's going to happen there. You have Rosario at short. And then maybe you go and you find a, a decent bat for a second. Maybe even use Wilmer Flores if you bring in a Hosmer. Uh, and you would like to have Flores' bat, but he cannot play defense. And he's more of a guy that you want to move around the field. Maybe you use Flores' bat to go out and see what you could get from an American League club because I really think Flores is more of a DH. So that's something for you guys to think about. Eric Hosmer is the one that I continue to gravitate towards. And there's going to be competition. You hear that the Red Sox are going to be in on him. You know, maybe the Yankees. Uh, I don't know what their thoughts are on Greg Bird. The Royals, because of who he is and who they know he is from a leadership and how much he's meant to the fabric of that team, maybe, uh, wanting to go in there and bring him back. And, and the Mets' budget is something that's you know not exactly going to be uh, open-ended here, where they could go out and get whoever they want. They have to be right about the big money player they go after. And I know they're looking at some big-name relievers. That's the rumor, uh, at least, and that's going to cost them. But to me, Eric Hosmer, if you had a choice between Hosmer and Bruce, I think you'd go after Hosmer because I think it creates less of a clumsy situation with the team. And I'm really not into Jay Bruce at first base. I know that he could probably learn it, but I think the Mets need to improve their defense, and, and that's not happening with Jay Bruce. I think Eric Hosmer does that on both the offensive. You don't lose anything offensively. I think you get pretty much as good, if not better, because you have more of the average contact with Hosmer um, and than you have with Jay Bruce. Uh, again, I, and I'm looking at this from far away. I'm only watching Hosmer and reading about him and watching him in a small sample. So that's my final thought here on uh, this Sunday, and I appreciate everybody joining in. And, uh, of course, you know, continue to, uh, you know, check out the podcast and, and support this, uh, this podcast. I want to thank Jim Margalis of SouthsideSox.com. You can check him out at Jim Margalis on uh, Twitter. Of course, I want to thank all of you guys for checking out and tuning in. I want to thank the good folks over at MetsamariaOnline.com. Of course, you can check me out all the time at Mike Silva Media on Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Let me know if I'm not on one. I'll try to get on one. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care.
enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.